speech after that, I don't know what to do. I'm telling you, ah, that, was, that was encouraging. I want to invite you to find your place in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at part of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, really verses 1 through 16 are the introduction. So this morning, we'll look at Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Next Sunday morning, we'll look at verses 13 through 16 as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus who has called his disciples away, led them away, and is, uh, is sharing or preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we prepare to look at this, I want to read our text and then jump in. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 and reading down to verse 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, God, I pray that I would preach your word faithfully. God, that as we look at this text, I pray that you would be glorified and honored and that everything I say would be true and line up with your word. Lord, we are your people. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we are. You know what's going on. So you know what we need to hear this morning. I pray that through your word and your Holy Spirit, you would speak to every heart that hears this message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start the introduction of our sermon, uh, Seek First. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what the central theme or central verse in the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, but I like seek ye first the kingdom of God. I think the idea of seeking first the kingdom of God is certainly a central theme uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, and so that is our sermon series title. But this morning we look at the Beatitudes, and here's the big question. What is it that Jesus is trying to teach those who would follow him? What is it that Jesus is trying to teach those who would follow him? Well, this morning, uh, as, we, as we look at this passage, I think that we'll begin to see some of the things that Jesus wants to teach those who would follow him. The first thing I want us to see is Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus, the greater Moses. Now, it may not be absolutely obvious to us, but as we look at these verses, in fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and really read through chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5, Matthew is trying to draw our attention to some similarities between Moses and Jesus here. 
And the similarities are not to say we have a new Moses. It is to show that we have a greater Moses. I referenced Hebrews last Wednesday night about how the author of Hebrews constantly was drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is greater. He is the, uh, the, the greater sacrifice. He is the greater high priest. He is greater than angels. On and on and on the author of Hebrews goes. And here in Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is the greater Moses. Uh, Moses known as the, the lawgiver or the one who uh, was instrumental in the receiving of the law. Um, but Jesus is the one who would fulfill the law and would keep the law and make it so all who would believe in him would be acceptable under the law, through the law. So what we see here is he's drawing our attention to that. I want to look at verse 1 and 2. There are lots of places, and I'll just reference one more before we get to these two, first two verses. If you go back to the birth narrative in Matthew, I believe it's still in chapter 1, maybe in chapter 2, uh, there is the similarity between Moses. Remember when Moses was born? All the little male children, all the little boys were being killed. Moses had to be hidden Jesus, the same thing. All the boys were killed. Jesus and his family had to go to Egypt. Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is the greater Moses. We see it here in verses 1 and 2. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying... If we remember, Moses went up the mountain. Why did he go up to the mountain? To meet with God, so that God might give the law or the Ten Commandments. The interesting thing is, Moses went up the mountain to meet with God. But Jesus goes up, with, up the mountain, and his disciples follow, and they meet with him, God the Son, in human flesh. So Jesus was not leading them up there so that they would all meet with God, including Jesus. No, Jesus was leading them up there so that he, as God, could meet with those who would follow him. But then it says that he began to teach them. The other thing that we see is Moses went up to be given the law or to be given understanding by God. Jesus goes up as God to give instruction to those who would follow him. Uh, we will see as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, he really deals with the Ten Commandments. In fact, I've often referred to part of this uh, Sermon on the Mount as the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. He'll talk about murder. He'll talk about adultery. He'll talk about how it starts in the heart. He expands on the Ten Commandments. And so we see that Jesus is the greater Moses. Secondly, though, I want us to look at the meaning of the word blessed. We see it over and over again here in this passage in the Beatitudes. Look with me, if you will. I won't read all the verses, but I just want to read these through. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the humble. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, there is a lot of debate and discussion and talk about, uh, first of all, how many Beatitudes there actually are. Let me just go ahead and settle that for you. There are eight. Some see nine. I'm going with eight. It's okay. If you see nine, we won't argue over it, okay? But I think there are eight. Uh, but as we see this, what is being said here, this idea of what is the meaning of blessed here? 
Well, there's the, sort of several thoughts. The first idea is just straightforward meaning of blessed. If you want to be blessed by God, then these behaviors are how you would be blessed by God. God will bless those who do this. And it's sort of the idea of the blessings of God going on those who would live these out. But then the second thing is that the, the actual meaning of the word is happiness. And so we, we don't want to think of earthly happiness because earthly happiness is fleeting, right? Uh, you may have been very happy with the gifts that you opened on Christmas. Or maybe some of you were not happy with the gifts that you opened on Christmas, but that happiness was dependent upon the moment and the circumstances. Uh, we are happy with things, and then it, as our happiness ebbs and flows based on our circumstances. But spiritual happiness is not that way. We often talk about it as joy. The joy of the Lord uh, you know, is different than happiness. The joy of the Lord is not dependent upon circumstances. We can be joyful or rejoice even in the midst of sorrows. Our joy, our spiritual happiness is not dependent upon circumstances. It is given to us by the Lord, and it sustains us through all circumstances. And so if we want to be spiritually happy, then we would look at these things. A more recent commentator wrote a commentary several years ago, and he translates this idea of blessed to be human flourishing. In fact, he even translates this text as flourishing are the poor in spirit or flourishing are those who mourn. And he talks about how if we are what we have been created to be, if we are doing all that we are created to do, our lives will line up with these things. So which is the right answer? I would say yes, all of these. It is all of that. We will be blessed by God if we live for him and honor him with the way that we live. If we make application of these things, we will experience spiritual happiness or joy as we follow the Lord in these behaviors. And as we make application to what Christ is calling us to, we will certainly flourish. And so you see sort of the multifacetedness of this term, the meaning of blessed. Next, though, thirdly, I want us to see eight priorities for members of the kingdom of God. The first thing that we would say about these are, these go against the world's ideas or ideals. When we look at what Jesus is calling us to, it is not what we would think. If we want to be blessed and happy, if we want to be uh, experiencing joy, we would perhaps put uh, a little different emphasis on what we ought to go after. But Jesus, being God, knows that all of those worldly joys really leave the person empty. It is only in a right relationship with God, only following the example of Jesus, that real, true, and lasting joy are experienced. And so we are not going to line up with the world's ideas. In fact, they're going to be just the opposite of the world's ideas. And we'll see that as we work through them. We'll see that there's a division. Now, you may be familiar with the division in the Ten Commandments. I believe the first four Ten Commandments are vertical commandments. They have to do with our relationship with God. And then the last six are horizontal commandments that have to do with our relationship with one another. In a similar way, these eight Beatitudes are divided. The first four are vertical. They have to do with our relationship and understanding of God and who we are in relationship to God. And then the last four are horizontal. They have to do with our relationship with one another. And so we see a similarity there. 
we also see an eternal promise attached to each of the Beatitudes. I ran through the blessed are. Let me do now sort of running through the end of each verse. Verse 3, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, for they will be comforted, for they will inherit the earth, for they will be filled, for they will be shown mercy, for they will see God, for they will be called the sons of God, for the kingdom of heaven is is theirs. Now there is a sense that some of those have a partial fulfillment in the in the contemporary time in today. So we who are believers, we certainly are called the sons and daughters of God. We are called the children of God. In fact, we have uh, greetings that we greet one another with that that uh, that relate to that. We call each other brother and sister because of our relationship to one another and our relationship as children of God. And so there is some sense that that is fulfilled today, but there is a much greater sense that these are eternal promises, that we will stand in future fulfillment of all of these things as we follow Jesus in these ways. And so they go against the world's ideas. There is the division of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. There are eternal promises attached, but then perhaps most importantly... As we look at these beatitudes, we will see that Jesus held each one of them. As we walk through them and as we make application to our lives, what we really are doing are following the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Scripture calls us to these things, we simply are following Jesus. Well, let's jump in. I want us to look individually at these eight very quickly. We've covered a lot of ground already. We've already covered uh, the, the three points, but now as sub-points, let's look at the eight Beatitudes. Uh, first of all, look with me, if you will, at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This idea of being poor in spirit may be foreign to us. What does that mean? What does poor in spirit mean? Well, we think about those who are destitute or those who are poor. Even in Scripture, we have the examples of beggars who would sit on the sides of road and beg. And why would they beg? Because they were completely dependent upon somebody else. Sometimes they were blind, sometimes they were lame, sometimes they had other issues, and they would cry out to those who were going by and ask for alms or for money because they would not make it if it were not for some of those who would pass by to help them out. So then when we think about poor in spirit or poverty of spirit, we need to have that same idea. We need to understand that we are absolutely destitute spiritually. We could not make ourselves right with God. We could not save ourselves. We could not be good enough to make ourselves right with God. We are totally dependent upon Him. We are in desperate need for Him to work in our lives. If He had not sent Jesus, if Jesus had not stepped out of heaven and put on flesh, there would be no hope for us. And so we need to remember that we are absolutely destitute spiritually. We are dependent upon God. Sometimes we get a little haughty or prideful spiritually and think, well, I'm a believer. I'm on my way to heaven. I, I can do this. I can handle this. And yet Jesus says, oh, no, our attitude ought to always be of the spiritual beggar. I am completely dependent upon the Lord. We see some examples. I want to show you a positive and a negative example of this. Turn me with me, if you will, to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, I want to read verses 1 through 5. Uh, the psalmist really gives a beautiful uh, illustration of what we're talking about. 
Here, David, the psalmist, says, Listen, Lord, and answer for me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, because I appeal to you, Lord. Verse 5, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who will call on you. Call on you. Do you hear David? Here is David crying out and saying, God, I'm calling on you all day long because I can't make it through a day without you. I am calling on you all day long because I have needs in my life that are beyond my ability. I cannot take care of them. God, how desperately I need you. I wait on you day after day because I need you to answer and work in my life. Well, that is the testimony of every believer. We never outgrow that. We never find ourselves beyond that. We are always dependent upon the Lord. But go with me, if you will, to the book of Revelations. I want to show you the other side of this. Sometimes uh, we get um, maybe too big for our britches spiritually. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7, uh, 17 and 18. This is part of the letters to the, to the churches in the book of Revelation. This is actually part of the letter to Laodicea. Uh, and so Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus is, is speaking here, and he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Here is the temptation for believers. We start to see things afoul. We start to think, well, I know Jesus, and I'm right with him, and so I don't need anything. I'm good. I've got this. I can handle today. I can handle this week. I can handle next month. And what Jesus says is, oh, how foolish are you? You can't make it through five minutes without me. I keep your brain going. I keep your heart beating. I give you breath for the moment. You cannot make it. I love what he says there. You need some salve for your eyes so that you might see who you are. You think you're rich. You think you can handle it. You think you have no need. You think that you're dressed appropriately, and yet you are blind, naked, desperate, wicked. Yeah, we want to get over that. We want to say, well, I, I'm saved. I'm a believer. I, I, I'm good. I've got this. Oh, well, we may be saved, but we don't got this. He's got us, and that's our only hope. We can't do this on our own. And so we need to be those who are poor in spirit. Because the truth of the matter is, that's where we are. We are absolutely dependent. If it were not for the grace and mercy of God, if he did not come along that road and give us what we could never find on our own, we would not have it. So we must be those who are poor in spirit. But then secondly, we see in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is not just any mourning. There are certainly times in our lives when we mourn, but there is a vertical mourning that is being talked about here. We are mourning our sin. We are mourning the sin that we see all around us. You understand that we live a lost and fallen and dark world, don't you? I mean, just, just look at society, how we treat one another. 
how often we're ready to fight, how often we're ready to be ugly towards one another. I, I remember when there was, remember a little bit of gas and the gas was high and there was, we thought we'd run out of gas. Did you, do you remember how people were treating each other at the gas station? Like they weren't going, oh, well, hey, come on in and get your, I mean, they were ready to fight each other at the gas station over a few gallons of gas. On the interstate, you watch how people treat one another. And it's ridiculous, and it reminds us of the sinful human heart. It is all around us. We see it. We read it. We watch it. How many murders will there be this day? How many crimes will we read about tomorrow? And as we do, what we see is we live in a lost and dark and fallen world, a world that has been affected by sin. Now, it's easy. It's one thing to look out and look at the sins around us. We see other people's sins so easily, don't we? You ask me about my neighbor's sin, or you ask me about my family's sin, or you ask me about uh, the people I work with and their sins. Boy, I, I see it like that, and I'm ready to tell you about it. Now, we certainly mourn the sinfulness of the world that we live in. It's a dark and fallen world, and we grieve over that. And the reason we grieve over those sins is because we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. We know the account of creation. We know that we were created to live in harmony with God, but sin will not allow it. And so we mourn that, but we also mourn our sin. I need to see my sin much easier and much quicker than I need to see the sins of everybody around me. I need to mourn my sin. I need to grieve my sin. Blessed are those who mourn. When we mourn our own sin, we confess and we grieve that things are not the way they ought to be in our lives. When we mourn the world around us and the sin that we see, we, we mourn and we grieve that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The good news is there is one who will make all things right. There is a day coming when all things will be renewed and sin will be no more, but we're not there yet. So we ought to be those who mourn. Next, though, we see that there is those who are humble. Look with me, if you will, at verse 5. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Again, this is a spiritual humility. It is an idea of, I did not do this. I did not save myself. Salvation is of grace so that none will boast. Sometimes we want to get big-headed in the church and think, well, I know Jesus, I figured it out, I'm good, I've got this, and I can do it, and things ought to go my way. Oh, no. You see, my salvation is not about me. It's a great story about Jesus and his redemption. Your salvation is not about you, but it's a great story about Jesus and, and him working redemption in your life. Your life is not to point to you. It is to point to him. And so we ought to never walk in arrogance or boastfulness. We ought to always walk in humility. What is it that we have that we've not been given? Life. Did you do that? I mean, you created yourself, right? You spoke yourself into existence. No. Breath. You, you came up with uh, all of the different systems of your body uh, that bring in oxygen and, and, and breathe out CO2. You created that. You did that, right? Oh, no. What about the gifts and the abilities that you have? Who gave you that? Who created you to be that way? God did. So first of all, we should use them for his sake, but then secondly, we should never become boastful about it. We should never be, well, look what I did. We should be, oh, God, how much you have blessed us. 
I don't deserve it. And it is a privilege and honor to use my gifts for your sake because you have given them to me. So blessed are the humble. But then we also see blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now these are the four that we've looked at so far that are vertical. So when we think about um, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's an acknowledgement of, of who we are before God. But when we think about blessed are those who mourn and mourning over our sins, it's an acknowledgement of what is wrong with us and what is right with God. When we acknowledge and are, are living out humility, it is a reminder that everything that happens good in our lives is from the hand of God, and we acknowledge that. And then hungering and thirsting for righteousness is never a satisfaction with self. It is always looking at Jesus and saying, I want more of what Jesus has done in my life. But we don't come to righteousness on our own. None of us got up and thought, well, I'm going to be righteous and saved ourselves and started doing the works of righteousness. No, we met Jesus. He convinced us of our lostness, called us to himself, and imparted his righteousness into our lives. And so when we seek, when we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, it is an acknowledgment of our need for God. What is it you hunger and thirst for? Uh, we ha talked a little bit about this in Sunday school with the woman at the well and what quenches our thirst. I'm a coffee drinker. I drink more than I should, and that's just my addiction. I'm sorry. It's where it is. I understand it. Confession's good for the soul. But I start off the morning with coffee. I go throughout the day with coffee, and sometimes I end the day with coffee. I like coffee. I don't get very long into very many days before I have coffee. That first cup in the morning quenches my thirst. I drink it, and I go, ah. And that 14th cup in the afternoon quenches my thirst. I drink it, and I go, ah. I spend a lot of time at the coffee pot during the day. I like coffee. I don't get to 6 o'clock at night and go, you know what? I forgot to drink coffee today. That's not ever really happened to me. First of all, I'll have a headache by about 9 a.m. if I don't have coffee. Yes, I already said I'm addicted. That's all right. That's where we're at. I thirst for coffee. I thirst for water. And in a similar way, we should not make it through the day without seeking the righteousness of God. We understand that righteousness is not our own. We don't develop it. We don't do it. We receive it from God. The Holy Spirit uh, counsels us and leads us into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord Jesus is our example of righteousness. God is calling us into righteousness that he has provided for us, and so we ought to hunger and thirst for it. We ought to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and one of the ways, several of the ways, are to be praying and talking to God, uh, to be praying and reading our Bible, to be confessing our our sins, to be acknowledging where we've fallen short and asking God to do his work of, of, uh, of sanctification in our lives. We ought to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our lives. It's an acknowledgement of God, we need you. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now let's look at the next four, those that have to do with our relationship with each other. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. It shows a growth beyond a selfish desire for mercy. We want mercy in our own lives. We want God to be merciful to us. We love it when other people are merciful to us. But we ought to be those who are merciful. It's hard, but we ought to let the mercy of God flow into our lives and then flow out of our lives to those around us. Yes, when those who do us wrong, we ought to be merciful. Yes, when others make mistakes or sin against us, we ought to be merciful. Why? Because we've been shown mercy. 
Think about our sin. Think about how much we rebelled. Think about all that God has forgiven us for and all that he has shown us mercy in. We ought to love mercy not just for ourselves, but we ought to be those who are are sharing mercy with those around us. But then next in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this idea of the heart is, is the central part of who we are. It contains our thoughts. It contains our emotions. It contains what we are. Uh, we, we think about our heart being made right. But as Jesus will go on to say later on in this sermon, the heart is the key. As he talks about uh, the issues and expands on the Ten Commandments, remember he says murder starts in the heart with hatred. He says, you say, well, I don't murder, but you hate your brother, and it starts there in our hearts. So if we're going to be those who are pure in heart, we are those who have had our hearts made right by God. And that, that sanctification works itself out in our attitudes and our actions. You see, the pure of heart are easy to spot because they're constantly going around forgiving. They're constantly going around loving. They're constantly going around and encouraging. They're constantly going around and showing mercy. Does that sound like a lot of Baptists you know? Well, the good news is we're not all that we ought to be. God's not through with us. But that doesn't mean we just sit here and say, well, when he wants to make me merciful, he'll make me merciful. Oh, no. We ought to be those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those who are regularly bringing our lives and our hearts before him and asking him to do in us what only he can do. Next, we see blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. How many of us are peacemakers? How many of us are those who are actively, regularly making peace, that the the situation is different because of us, because God using us to bring peace. Some of you know that my other job is working with 70 churches, and one of the things that happens from time to time is they will call me and ask me to do business meetings at their churches. You know the phone call I have never received yet? Hey, hey, Brother Richard, we need you to come and do a business meeting. It's going to be a normal business meeting, and we expect everybody to love each other, and we expect that there will be no issues. Would you come and moderate that business meeting? Now, the reason they call me is, hey, Richard, we've got problems, and we think this is going to be a knockdown, drag-out fight. Would you come and moderate this business? Where are the peacemakers? We've got a church full of Baptists, and we've got no peacemakers. And yet here it says, blessed are the peacemakers. Why in the world would we fuss and fight? Why in the world would we be ugly to one another? Why in the world would we act in such a way when Jesus calls us to follow him and be peacemakers? It's not easy to be a peacemaker. Yes, we don't always get our way, and yes, we have to serve others, and yes, we have to compromise, but Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We need more peacemakers we just need to be peacemakers. If we need more peacemakers, where are they going to come from? In this room? From those who have been called by Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers. Then finally, verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. 
Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and by the way, how they would treat Jesus later on in this very gospel and in the New Testament. How many of you would like some insults? How many of you would like some persecution? How many of you would like to be lied about? And how many of you would like every evil spoken against you? Anybody want to sign up for that? All right, seeing no hands, I'm in agreement with you. I don't want any of that. Now, it's not just persecution and it's not just difficulty. It is persecution and difficulty because of Christ, because of him. As we follow Jesus, as we are peacemakers, as we are humble, as we are poor in spirit, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we pour out mercy, as we are the pure in heart, there will be persecution. There will be those who say, I can't believe you're acting that way. Why would you show that person mercy? Don't you know you should hold that grudge for the next four 40 years and never forget what they've done? There will be those who won't see it and won't understand it and won't like it. But as we follow Jesus, there will surely be those difficulties that will come into our lives. And God says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Don't miss that it's the persecution we get because of him. It's not that we go, our, go out and make ourselves hateable to everybody. If you're just mean and ornery and people don't like you, there's no blessings in that. You don't get rewards in heaven for that. It's as you live for Jesus and people persecute you that we're talking about here. So here was the big question at the beginning. What is it that Jesus is trying to teach those who would follow him? Here is the answer. We are not of this world, and we don't follow the world's ways. Our home is in heaven and we follow Jesus, this will stand out. We will look different. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your words. Lord, as we go now to a time of invitation, I suspect as we've worked our way through these eight Beatitudes, that you've spoken to your people. Maybe even some of them have hit hard as they've sat there and heard your word this morning. Maybe there are some of them where they think, you know what, I'm not a peacemaker. Sometimes I'm the instigator. I'm not humble. I'm not the poor in spirit. Maybe this morning as you've brought conviction to their hearts, maybe right now during this time of response and invitation, they need to get those things right. We give this invitation time to you, and we ask that you would work as you see fit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing Just As I Am, hymn number 307. If the Lord's laid a decision on your heart, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. Let's stand as we respond to the Lord.
Pastor Chuck, you're going to pray for us this morning, right? Well, before he prays, uh, let me just let you know um, there will be a memorial service this Thursday here at 1030 for Nancy Singletary. So we wanted to make sure you're aware of that, make sure you know that. So you be praying uh, for Jim and the rest of the family, if you will. And Pastor Chuck, would you close us out in prayer and pray for our offering as well, please, sir? What a privilege it is, our Father, to be in the house of the Lord and to help all of us to understand the meaning of being blessed by you. Help us, our Father, to hear the words that were shared with us. And I pray for our offering, Father, that uh, you will honor it and that you will bless it and help us to give out of a heart of love. And Jesus, when things in our own personal life, in our world, in our church, are, seem to be spiraling out of control, we know that you're still in control. And in this ever-changing world, our Father, you never change. Every promise you've made, we know you will keep. And whatever happens, no matter how disturbing, your loves will see us through. And because you're always with us, we will not be afraid. Jesus, when the world seems dark, you give us light. And you are strength and weakness and hope and despair. Because you never change, nor does your purpose. You're always holy, you're just, and you're right. And most of all, you're there. You're with us individually and as a, a nation and as a as a society, shielding, protecting, comforting, and reassuring us. We're safe in your presence. Oh God, keep us in your presence. Forgive us when we don't stand in awe of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.